Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, we're still covering that active shooter case that occurred on Sunday, just before 2 p.m. in the afternoon at the mega church of Joel Olstein, uh, known as the Lakewood Church, which holds over 16,000 people, seats over 16,000 people, and in an average week has over 45,000 attendees walk through the doors of that church. So that is extra concerning in a, in a situation like this where we get an active shooter incident. And thank God in this situation that um, the church did have it covered in regards to having off-duty law enforcement, armed, I might say, armed off-duty law enforcement that put a quick end to what could have been a usually tragic situation. Already quite tragic because a seven-year-old boy took a bullet in his head and is still alive, however, uh, is in extremely critical condition. And that, of course, was the son of 36-year-old Genesee Moreno, who you see a picture of on the screen, who incidentally has a criminal history dating back to 2005. And those are the charges, assault of a public servant, assault causing bodily injury, theft, evading arrest. All of the same things that whenever we report an active shooter, all of the same things seem to be repeating themselves. Number one, mental illness, a huge, huge factor in these incidents. The access to a firearm, in this case, acquiring a legal firearm, even though the person was schizophrenic. I mean, we question that and we question reg, red flag laws. Like, what are they preventing? They don't seem to be preventing anything. And the authorities that were in charge of this and, you know, mental health professionals that had responded to uh, Genesee Moreno's home numerous times. And in fact, there was a custody battle with her ex in regards to her son. And you wonder if these things are documented, then how is someone like the defendant in this case, Genesee Moreno, how is she able to acquire a firearm, you know? And an AR-15 at that. And numerous responses by law enforcement to her home. Yet, all this tragic incident still, still occurred, even though all of these things were present. So these are some of the issues, and I'll have with me tonight, retired Sergeant Mike Geary, retired NYPD Detective Phil Grimaldi, and we're going to discuss at great length, with great knowledge, about active shooters and what can be done, because this isn't the first time we've covered an active shooter. In fact, too often we cover them. So guys, hold on to your seats. You're about to enter true crime from a police perspective. And off the cuff, you're entering the police off the cuff zone. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. We're going to get right into this. Let me invite my two co-hosts tonight. From straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. Phil, welcome to the show tonight. Thanks, Billy. Thank you for having me. 
And I know you guys in the uh, in the East, in New York, in Brooklyn, and uh, Westchester, you got about six to eight inches of snow. And uh, I appreciate that you still made it on. I know, Phil, you were out shoveling your walk, and uh, I appreciate that. Also, coming to the show tonight, straight out of Westchester, professor at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut, retired NYPD sergeant, attorney. Welcome to the show, Mike Geary. Hey, Bill. Good evening. Thank you for having me on. Good evening, Phil. Good to see hey, you. Mike, how are you? Great to have you guys. So we all know what happened on Sunday, and it's all too familiar to us. And we call this an active shooter. And thank God this shooter was not allowed to be more active than she could have been because she was taken out by two off-duty police officers, one a Houston police officer, HPD, Houston Police Department. The other one, TABC, uh, Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission. You know, they're doing what cops do all over this country, work a part-time job because they don't get paid enough money. So they're working a part-time job security. And that's what saved so many lives in this church. But yet, one of the things we have to realize, Phil, is these two officers have to live with the fact, and it hasn't been put out there yet, but potentially... One of them could have shot this seven-year-old, seven-year-old, and we don't know for sure because they haven't announced that. But just imagine having to live with that, even though you knew that you did the right thing, Phil. Yeah, Bill. I guess uh, that's what we would call in uh, law enforcement as a collateral uh, injury, a collateral damage, so to speak. Uh, very, very unfortunate. I just hope and pray that that little boy does make a full recovery. However, they did say he was shot in the head and was very critical. Uh, obviously, everybody should uh, just keep a good thought and have a prayer for that little boy. I believe his name was Sam, uh, thrust into this uh, horrific incident by uh, his own mother that was uh, obviously uh, not mentally stable. Uh, schizophrenia uh, diagnosed a long time ago. Uh, many, many uh, instances, brushes with law enforcement, and uh, just very, very unfortunate that uh, she was able to procure, procure the firearm, and uh, after being arrested for possession of a weapon, I believe it was 2016, uh, but uh, with all of these things said, like you said early on, Billy, we've seen all the red flags before, we saw them here, uh, by the grace of God, uh, this incident wasn't way more tragic, I think that... Uh, the fact that they had those off-duty police officers there that did have firearms, even though they were outgunned, she had an AR-style uh, firearm, a rifle. Uh, it, it's believed that they uh, got into the gun battle with her with handguns, but they were able to neutralize her and uh, limit the amount of injuries. Uh, I believe there was a 57-year-old man that was shot but was already released from the hospital. So with all of that said, uh, you know, we have to tip our hats to those officers and uh you know, uh, like you said, Billy, it would be tragic if one of their bullets was the one that struck that uh, little seven-year-old boy. Mike, we've been here before, and we yeah. before the show, we even mentioned the shooting Robert Card, right? Uh, who they had all kinds of red flags on, and we talk about red flag laws and what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to prevent people with mental illnesses from procuring firearms and potentially do bad things like was done here. Why aren't these laws working, Mike? Bill, the, the, you know, you can have all the laws in the, on the books. You can have the best of intents, you know, uh, state law. But in the end, it really comes down to who is actually handling these calls in these cases. Who's keeping track? Is there any sort of law enforcement, you know, connection with the uh, state firearms authority in like, say, Maine, where you had um, Mr. Card, uh, or in Texas here with Genesee, you know, um, that's where the enforcement comes in. It's, there's a lot of, uh, other, there's a lot of people like this. They get the firearm, even <coughs> though there's many laws and layers of bureaucracy that say you can't do it, they get it and, uh, they can cause a lot of damage. It just comes down to, you know, what's the actual enforcement mechanism? Does it work? And it just seems like the, the actual enforcement mechanism actually doesn't work in too many instances like we see here. But by the grace of God, uh, no one else was killed. And hopefully that young boy makes it through. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've spoken about these active shooter incidents, and that's the one major part, that the prevention part. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is the 
security part of it is securing what's considered to be a church is considered to be a soft target you know right. for someone to go in a church and perhaps if a would-be shooter knows that um, a church has armed guards in it they may think twice about going in there i don't know whether or not uh genesee moreno knew that this church had off-duty officers in there that were armed maybe that if she had known that maybe that would have prevented her going in so Basically, let's just go over quickly what happened. Houston megachurch shooter had an AR-15 and brought her seven-year-old son. So this is from the New York Times. Officials said a 36-year-old woman who opened fire at Lakewood Church, which is led by televangelist Joel Osteen, had a documented history of arrest and mental illness. She was killed uh, by off-duty officers. And this was at right before 2 p.m. on Super Bowl Sunday, as most people gathering with their family, friends, and preparing to perhaps watch, watch the Super Bowl at 6 o'clock. Uh, this is what happened in, in this mega church. The woman pointed an AR-15 at an unarmed security guard, officials said, and then made her way inside the church, which is led by televangelist Joel Osteen. Almost immediately, she opened fire in a hallway with the AR-15. Uh what may have been a mass shooting inside one of the nation's largest megachurches had been narrowly averted by a pair of off-duty officers working security at the church, a commonplace feature of worship at large congregations across the United States. The officers, a Houston police officer and an agent from the State Alcohol Beverage Commission, confronted the woman, exchanged fire with her, and killed her. Her son was also struck in the head by gunfire. Uh, he remained in critical condition on Monday. A man in the church was also wounded. So what could have been that much worse? And, you know, when a, when a seven-year-old kid is shot in the head, you, you, you wonder what could be that much worse. But the fact that the shooter had an AR-15, which is a semi-automatic uh, rifle, uh, and I don't know how big the clip was that she had. She could have killed multiple people in a confined area of a church. And that's why we at law enforcement and government officials are saying that this could have been oh so much worse. And by the way, a 57-year-old man was also shot, but who's listed at this point in a stable condition. So again, how they set this up and how they did have armed off-duty office in here, uh, in this church, no doubt avoided a huge, uh, a huge tragedy. Mike. Yeah, Bill. But for them, this would have turned out to be another mass shooting, like with with Robert Card just in Maine just a few months ago. And um, so, therefore, is you know, they uh, Olstein and his and his organization, you know, responded to possible threats you know, and maybe rumors, you know, that sort of thing. They understand you can't have that many people together. They've seen, um, we've had church shootings in Texas before, uh, South Carolina. We've seen this sort of stuff at synagogues. You know, uh, it, it's horrible. And uh, you can't even find a place of peace, a place to, you know, say a prayer. But, um, you know, this could have been prevented if the, the red flag laws actually worked and the enforcement arm of the red flag laws actually worked, but it didn't. And so therefore, um, you know, you have congregations that have their own armed security and it's unfortunate, but it is an absolute vital necessity in today's world. And that's, that's a sad thing. You have to harden the target so that therefore you deter these sort of, you know, uh, occurrences from, you know, happening. And Absolutely. You know, T.D. Lewis from the chat, um, I'm going to read what she has to say. I believe it's a she. I'm not sure. If, if, you, if it's a male, let me know. Our great chief Finner, HPD, did say it was possible the child could have been struck by one of the law enforcement officers and said they'll announce it after reviews of the, the ballistics. He also said it would be uh, on the mom's son. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We can't blame this on the officers who were trying to defend the lives of the people in the church. We blame it on the shooter that brought a seven-year-old boy in there and was uh was about to kill people uh that's whose fault this is mm -hmm. you know 
That's who, on the screen right there, 36-year-old Genesee Moreno. It is her fault, not the officers who returned fire at great risk to themselves and everyone else in that church, and no doubt saved numerous lives. Phil? Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, this falls on uh, on her. And, uh, you know, I want to piggyback a little bit about what Mike said about hardening a target. When I was in the intelligence division, we did some site surveys on different locations. And what a site survey is, is you have a soft target like you talked about earlier, Billy. Uh, you know, a church is considered a soft target. So many people are going to be gathering. It's a large location. And this particular church is a former sports arena. So it's a mega church. So there's lots of exits and entrances. But I believe uh, they put in place a plan with the police officers that were off duty security guards to interact or interdict people that coming in and the uh, exits are usually uh, you can't get in from the outside. They probably have only one or two ways in and, but you can exit if God forbid an emergency, you can push those doors and get out. So different uh, things are uh, analyzed when you took, do a site survey and you try to take precautions and steps uh, you know, like with schools, they'll have the buzzer to get into the school. Uh, you know, it's a, a hardened door. So different things of that nature, but specifically the fact that they had two armed police officers, this could have been super tragic. You talk about an AR style weapon, that AR 15 round, uh, can go through, uh, numerous bodies. It could hit one person, kill them and then travel and hit another person and kill them or even a third person. So the, uh, high velocity, high powered round, very, very extremely dangerous. Uh, I think those officers were able to hold the line, prevented that, uh, that tragic, tragic situation from getting extremely worse. Uh, you know, in, in an area, if you were up high and there's all those people, it would have been just uh, like picking them off if she knew how to use that rifle. So uh, we do have to tip our hats to those law enforcement officers. And uh, if by uh, chance this does turn out that the little boy was shot by one of them, Again, uh, totally on her. Absolutely. This is uh, an arrest, uh, uh, the most recent arrest report from June. Uh, and it, it identifies the shooter as a female uh, with all these different aliases. Uh, she was born in El Salvador. You see the name Jeffrey Escalante, Jeffrey Genesee Escalante, Jeffrey Moreno Escalante. And then you see somewhere along the Genesee Ivan Moreno. So uh, we're just reporting what you know we've been told uh, by the media, what's been put out there by the police, and some documentation. Uh, many people are saying, in, even in the chat, "Oh, this is a man." You know, this we're reporting what the police are identifying the shooter as. Uh, we're not going to go against what they say. Um, and I know a lot of people are. This becomes politically. Uh, sort of a, a buzzword, a hot topic, you know, uh, just as you don't hear, uh, I don't think it's been reported, period, uh, about the immigration status of the shooter. Uh, was she here legally? Is she here Ill illegally? We're not hearing a lot about that. Also, on the rifle, apparently, uh, Palestine was written on, on the rifle. Um, and apparently in the search warrant, of her house, which was in um, Conroe uh, in Montgomery County, which is about 50 miles from this church. They had found some anti-Semitic uh, ramblings, writings, uh, and apparently her in-laws were Jewish, and perhaps it was directed toward them more so than this Christian church. So it, it's sort of baffling as to why uh, Joel Osteen's church was chosen as a target for this would-be active shooter, Mike. Yeah, it's a strange target when you think of it, because uh, Joel Osteen has met people of many faiths. It's uh, it's uh, you know you have Baptists, Lutherans, Catholics, you know you name it. It's got everybody there, and so it's not like I would expect with if there was some sort of anti-Semitic ramblings and Palestine on the uh, rifle butt and if she was having problems with her uh with her in-laws who are jewish you would think she would look for you know a temple you know to attack and maybe kill you know symbolically kill people that she doesn't like but uh in this case um 
she actually went to a church where you you probably would we you if there's six you know say there's ten thousand people there on a Sunday service, there might be two or three Jewish people and everybody else is some denomination of of of, of Christianity, and I think there is actually one story I read today where she actually donated money to the church and actually got a thank you letter, like a form letter from Joel Olstein's uh, organization saying thank you. So it's really, she's seems to be all over the place. It doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense going there uh, with uh, a load of ammunition and, a, and an AR-15 as maybe because she has many mental health issues that she can't even keep me keep keep it straight in her mind what she's doing, but it is a very odd target considering who's going to be there, and at um, at uh, and the time she picked also because it was kind of like starting um, the uh, Spanish language serv uh, service yes, that was going right. to be completely in Spanish. So being from El Salvador, why would she go to a service where there may be people from? her own native country there also. It's a very strange uh, tar target and time to, to pick to do that sort of shooting. Very strange. Absolutely. You know, I want to just mention, since we've been using the terminology active shooter, I just want to give everyone, uh, it is an actual definition put out by our government. The agreed upon definition of active shooter by U.S. government agencies, including the White House, U.S. Department of Justice, FBI, U.S. Department of Education, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and Federal Emergency Management Agency is an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a confined and populated area. In most cases, active shooters use firearms, and there's no pattern or method to their selection of victims. Active shooter situations are unpredictable and evolve quickly. Because active shooting situations are over, often over within 10 to 15 minutes, before law enforcement arrives on the scene, individuals must be prepared both mentally and physically to deal with an active shooter. In most cases, active shooters use firearms, and there's no pattern or method to their selection of victims. Individuals have been known to act without firearms, such was the case in April 2014th. 2014 at Franklin Regional High School, where 21 students were stabbed. It's for this reason that ALICE is the acronym, uh, Active Killer, Violent Intruder, and Active Assailant. So they, they changed sort of the, the name because it's someone just trying to wreak havoc, whether it's with a firearm or with a knife, you know, an active killer. So ALICE, uh, Active Killer, Violent Intruder, Active Assailant. So what I mean, but... They've changed over the years what they tell people to do in an active shooter situation. And, of course, if you're in a confined space, they're not telling you to surrender. They're telling you to fight back. Run, hide, fight. Right? Yeah, because perhaps if one person can distract the shooter, that one person may sacrifice their own life but may save dozens of lives through their actions. Phil. Yeah, Billy, I, I think uh, I've talked about this before. We've done uh, many episodes on whether it be active shooter, uh, you know, or if someone takes an automobile and, and goes to a, 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 you know, some type of a gathering for a holiday, a parade, let's say, and run people over. We've talked about this uh, numerous times. And the run, hide, fight is the uh, general uh, uh, thing that they, it's the rule of thumb for a school, uh, an enclosed area like we talked about uh, with this situation. So uh, I always stress that, you know, uh, the, the, the mindset of the person that's going to do the, the shooting, in this case shooting, uh, you know, when bullets start flying back at them, it just throws them off. It changes the whole scenario. They had control. They got this big rifle. They're going to control. They're going to kill people. Now, when bullets start flying back at them, it puts them in a different mindset. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, they were able to prevent this shooter from accessing uh, the inside of the location of the church, of the, the arena, and it could have been much, much worse. They were able to hold the line, and they were able to neutralize the shooter. So uh, in any situation where you have a gathering like this, uh, we've talked about it many times 
hardening the target, but also having armed, uh, whether they be ex-military, uh, off-duty, or retired police officers, I think that that's really the key to preventing a lot of these uh, situations from escalating into mass casualty events. Absolutely. T.D. Lewis, again from the chat. HPD said she was a female. It's not uncommon to drive that far to go to Lakewood. Her mom was a member. The perp went through four CPS investigations. It also had some counseling interaction with church staff. T.D. Lewis, thank you for that information. And one of the things that we question we ask early on is, why are these red flag laws not working? Why are they not? How is it allowing people with really deep-seated mental health issues to obtain a firearm? And that's what's baffling to us. Because, look, I'm in a state now, New York State, which is very restrictive with firearms. And I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Now, for me to get uh, bullets, they got to do a background check on me just to get rounds, to get bullets for my gun. And if you ask me, you know, of course, I would say that's a little bit ridiculous. But yet then, then, then there's people with mental health issues acquiring firearms, but and, and yet there's states that are restricting retired law enforcement officers with spotless records from obtaining bullets for their guns. Mike. Billy, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense whatsoever. <clears throat> you know, uh, retired law enforcement, absolutely. Uh, active duty law enforcement, I'm sorry, retired law enforcement, it doesn't make sense to restrict uh, retired law enforcement um, because they are your best friend out there. Whenever I'm driving around, if I see a police officer on a car stop, I'll slow down just a little bit, watch what's going on. Anytime I see law enforcement interacting with the public and they're outnumbered, say it's three to one, I'm going to slow down and watch. Um, they are your, they are the public's best friend. And yet the legislation is not there to, you know, make that a reality. They may, they treat retired law enforcement uh, as if you are suspicious, they re, uh, that you, you're a stranger to the law and you actually have to prove your fitness. Uh, it, it makes no sense. And unfortunately, it does hurt the public because there are many retired police officers who would actually want to help more, uh, but they can't because of the restrictions on firearms. If you want to buy in New York, you're right. You want to buy a, bo uh, a box of 100 38 caliber revolver bullets for your for your old gun or nine millimeter, you actually have to do the regular uh, federal background check that they do in the store when you go to buy a firearm. It makes no sense. And it's sad. Um, and also, you, you have different gun cultures across the country. Out west, they have a very different gun culture than in the northeast. So to apply one standard uh, would seem on one level to make sense, but on another level, it it uh, it does conflict with uh, you know states' ability to uh, control the you know what goes on in their own borders, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense sometimes. No, absolutely not. But you know, in, in this situation, we've seen one of the worst incidents we've seen of uh, poor security at a school and poor response by law enforcement was, of course, Uvalde, right in Texas, and we all remember that incident and. There were so many failures during that incident, uh, and most of it had to do with leadership and with the response to an active shooter. It seemed like they were not trained properly. They did not respond properly. And when the, uh, the person who was in charge took over, he made all the wrong decisions. And one of the things we know about an active shooting incident, usually it's over in five to 10 minutes. So the chances of law enforcement getting there quick enough to confront the shooter unless he's holed up in the location, he or she's holed up in the location, chances are that that's not going to happen. And they're going to get the active shooter after all the damage has already been done. Phil. Yeah, Billy, most uh, uh, responses to 9-11 calls average around three to four minutes. So think about it. If uh, a person enters a location and begins shooting, 
How many people can they kill in three to four minutes before law enforcement would even be on the scene? Now, obviously, there's uh, sometimes there's school safety officers that are present might cut down on on the uh, response in the school. Uh, in this particular case, the church had the armed security, so they were they were there. There was really no lag in in response time. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that that's key with, uh, these type of locations, having that type of, uh, you know, uh, a barrier, so to speak between the people and, uh, the outside world. Uh, when you have someone like this that comes in, uh, you know, we talked about all the red flag stuff here. There was one thing that really jumped out at me and it has to do with this little boy in 2022, his, uh, his grandmother, uh, Wally Carranza, she petitioned the court to be conservator of Sam, little Sam. And she was denied that. I think, uh, that may be what they were talking about when they reported that there was this contentious divorce battle between, uh, the defendant here, uh, Genesee and her ex-husband. Uh, there was also uh, talk of that the family, uh, they were Jewish. Some of the members were Jewish. So that could be the anti-Semitic uh, part of uh, what they found in the, uh, in the search warrant. And, uh, you know, to put Palestine on the rifle and take that type of, uh, you know, uh, an approach to this situation, really, uh, it sounds like she was just trying to put a label on something. Uh, and then again, uh, like, Mike said earlier, you know, this is a location where uh, there wouldn't be a large, uh, you know, contingent of Jewish people. It was a Christian uh, church. So, uh, you know, I, I guess we have to try and take apart all the things that happen in a case like this and maybe use some of the things that happened uh, as tools to prevent it from happening going forward. But uh, so many red flags in this case. Schmitty, thank you so much for the $5 super sticker. Didn't law enforcement... Find ingredients for an explosive in her car also. I'm wondering her connections to that. I'm sure law enforcement is on it. Uh, scary. No, she said she had. Uh, the police searched the um, uh, shooting suspect's home. Uh, they were looking for firearms, computers, cell phones, as well as materials used to make explosives or a hoax bomb, according to the search warrant. She said something to the police that she had explosives and she had some actually fake tripwire, but it never turned out that she had explosives, but she was trying to make them concerned that she did have that. So yeah, Billy, she, she supposedly, there was an exchange between her and the offices, I guess that uh, confronted her. And she did make a statement that she had a bomb. I don't know if it was after she was shot or during the confrontation, which actually they say lasted about 12 minutes. So she made uh, some remarks about that. And there was also uh, a report that she had uh, sprayed some substance, but they didn't think it was uh, a dangerous substance. So like you said, it, Bill, she may have had some type of, uh, I guess a, uh, a fake uh, detonator or something like that, maybe to uh, have the ruse that she had a bomb. But uh, they, they did say that there was no explosives found or anything. And, and the uh, substance that she sprayed uh, was said to be non-dangerous. A neighbor by the name of Farah Signorelli, uh, a neighbor of uh, Miss Moreno, said that she and others in the neighborhood at times been fearful of Miss Moreno. She was very mean, very angry, uh, and this woman teaches life skills at an elementary school. She said Miss Moreno had begun antagonizing her after Miss Moreno learned that her son was in Miss Signorelli's class. Uh, so there had been numerous issues with, besides mental health professionals, with her neighbors who had called the police. And, you know, we should perhaps talk about that. What and Mike, you you, you got you're a lawyer. Besides uh, a police sergeant, retired police sergeant, what are the parameters for the police to take action in something like this? I mean, what we used to have all the time when we were on the job was an EDP, which was known as an emotionally disturbed person, and the state mental health law allowed us to take that person into custody without fear of being sued if we determined that that person was a danger to themselves or others. Honest. And that's all that was up to the sergeant to take that person into custody or the officers if the sergeant wasn't on the scene. So what, at what level did it, this reach or not reach that the police apparently never took her into custody? 
Yeah, reading, you know, going over this and researching for, before the show tonight, it seems when you read these stories about the neighbor, uh, you know, Marino was a very, very uh, antagonistic person, nasty, um, contentious. Uh, and uh, but it doesn't seem I don't see where she actually brandished a firearm or a, or a knife and threatened to kill anybody. Um, it, um, she, uh, had, they, she, something, she, there was one thing I think she, uh, put a, painted a SWAT sticker or something on a fence or something like that. There was one small incident with that, but, uh, I think other than, you know, pointing a, a rifle, a pistol or threatening the neighbor with a weapon, it was, you know, just a little bit less than that. But she was a very antagonistic person. Obviously, uh, anyone can see that she was having some issues, uh, personality issues, getting along with other people kind of issues. But they never seemed those things other than the theft, the forgery, the assault, you know, the unlawful possession of a pistol back in 2000. I think it was 22. Um, other than those things, um, they were they were. Uh, all like these low-level nuisance things that may, depending on the level of, uh, you know, what the threshold was for uh, invoking a red flag law in Texas, it may have fallen below that. You may, look, you could have the, the greatest laws, the greatest law enforcement people behind, but if she doesn't trip a particular threshold, then she's not going to be affected by that law. And that's what I think happened here. She's got a long history of abusive behavior to other, with other people, but she never got to that point where the police would come and see her and then, you know, make an arrest at that point. She got arrested for other things, but not for that. Um, and so I think that's where she kind of fell through the cracks. And, uh, you know, the, you're never going to write a law that's perfect. And some, you always have to have minimum conduct in order to be affected by the law. And uh, it seemed that in 2022, um, when she was uh, arrested for carrying a weapon unlawfully, and I think she did like 12 days in jail, that would have been the time to uh, maybe perhaps, uh, if they could, you know, uh, commit her to a mental health facility, and maybe that would have prevented this. But it didn't happen. Absolutely. Happen. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, and share us with your family and friends. In addition, we have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to contribute to us financially. And we also have a YouTube channel membership where we have uh, all kinds of different uh, things that we give to our members. And you can also join that. We have five different levels of that. Police Off the Cuff is growing. And if you like, as I said, real crime from a police perspective from former NYPD, retired NYPD with all kinds of experience in homicide and all kinds of uh, police jobs and the law too, because that's why we got uh, Professor Mike and Phil Grimaldi here that will uh, add this. You know, I wanted to just uh, go on... The past of uh, Genesee Ivan Moreno, the suspected Lakewood church shooter, includes a turbulent marriage, a contentious divorce, allegations of child and spousal abuse, a checkered criminal record, and well-documented history of mental health issues. And this is according to ABC News in a review of documents and records. Uh, and of course, we know what, what this led to. Uh, Moreno was previously married to a man named Enrique Carranza III. It ended in a contentious divorce and bitter custody battle. The divorce was finalized in 2022. Carranza in court papers described a turbulent relationship and separation from a severely abusive relationship on Moreno's part. In an affidavit he filed in 2020 related to divorce and custody proceedings, he described Moreno's mental health issues and violence towards him and their son, in the later filing, Moreno herself pushed back, saying it was a husband who had physically assaulted her. Uh, so, again, all of the things that we need 
as law enforcement, as mental health professionals, push back, were there, but yet somehow it fell through the track, uh, the cracks, Phil. Yeah, well, I think that uh, in the words of Wally Carranza, she said this lies at the feet of the Montgomery County and the Harris County Child Protective Services because it appears uh, Child Protective Services had been involved with this family and uh, with the welfare of little Sam. Uh, however, uh, like I said earlier, she tried to petition the court to be the, um, uh, let's see what it says here, the the, the uh, conservator for little Sam, which I, I think would mean to try and uh, gain custody of him. And uh, she was denied that. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of times, uh, you know, the, the family court system I know in, I'm familiar with in New York, uh, they do tend to err on the side of the mother to keep the child with the mother. So long as the mother is not engaging in, uh, you know, uh, detrimental behavior, like uh, severe drug use or is suicidal or things of that nature. They usually try to keep uh, the child with the mother. But uh, in this case, it was uh, truly a, a tragic failure. I, I have to say that. And I agree with, um, uh, with uh, Miss Wally Carranza, the, the grandmother, where she says it lies on the, on the, on the feet of uh, child protective services in those counties. Absolutely. Jeff M. from the chat, we could go on and on for days about gun regulations and trying to pass laws, but the bottom line is it'll always be easy for anybody to get their hands on a firearm. They're literally everywhere. Jeff, I agree with you. You know, the other day in New York City, not the other day, last week, they had a migrant, 15 years old, obtained a 45 caliber semi-automatic, and he shot someone after he was caught stealing from a store, and then he fired at the NYPD multiple times. So you're right. And, you know, the joke of it is, is Times Square, where this shooting occurred, is a gun-free zone. Oh, how brilliant is that? The yeah, that really politicians, Who cares about a gun-free zone if you're a criminal? The only people that care about a gun-free zone are people that are law-abiding, and those aren't the ones that can have a problem with. So it's <laughs> lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. Professor Mike. Billy, yeah, the, the, law, the laws are there for us to make a statement. But the laws don't seem to actually, you know, are, uh, are effective in protecting people. And uh, Phil pointed this out, and we've seen this many times. Uh, sometimes law enforcement might take, in a quick response time, three minutes. But in, in other times, maybe in a more rural area, might take 10 minutes. Uh, we saw what happened with Columbine many, many years ago. And that changed completely the way that law enforcement responded to these sort of cases. And so therefore, in those few crucial minutes, it's up to the, the public, the person, the people themselves to be able to have the ability to protect them, either run, fight, or, you know, or hide, but you got to do something fast. And law enforcement, unfortunately, many times cannot get there that fast. Look, you, you've, we've all pushed a radio car around Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, Manhattan, and during traffic and you're trying, you got lights and sirens going to a, you know, to a robbery in progress or something or, to, or sh shots fired and you've got people cutting you off and you can't get out of a side street. And, you know, the minutes hang like hours. So the laws are there to make politicians and other people feel safe, but they're very ineffective. The only thing that protects you is you yourself and what's in between your ears. That's it. Absolutely. Phil. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, listen, guys, if you found yourself in some type of a legal conundrum where you need uh, the help of a criminal defense attorney, right up there on the screen is Joe Murray, attorney at law. He is a terrific criminal defense attorney, and he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD, so he literally knows both sides of defense. If you want to get a hold of Joe, you see right there on the screen, his website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray is a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, and we think he is a terrific criminal defense attorney. You, you know, Billy, I just want to make a quick comment. Uh, that last uh, comment that you put up 
with regard to the guns. Yes, there are a lot of guns uh, in the United States, and uh, a lot of times illegal guns can be obtained by people on the street. But in this particular case, we know that she had a serious, you know, a diagnosed medication for schizophrenia. She'd been arrested carrying an illegal firearm, and she was still able to procure that rifle. Something went wrong there. I, I think that uh, with all the things that are in place in this day and age, uh, you know, someone uh, with that type of history and recent arrests uh, should not have gotten on their, uh, their hands on a gun legally. This gun was legally purchased. And that just, you know, that makes it bad for for people like you, me and Mike and anybody that's into shooting and, and uh, the sports uh, sportsmen that, uh, you know, that go shooting on the weekends and makes it harder for them. Uh, all the things are put in place, like Mike was saying, the laws are there. Uh, we have, uh, you know, these fail safes that are in place and somehow or another it fell through the cracks. To me, that's unacceptable. If she bought the gun on the street, that'd be a different story. She purchased that gun legally with all of this history of mental illness and criminal activity and she was still able to get a gun. Something went wrong there. And, and uh, I really hope that. Uh, you know, that heads are going to roll or some action is taken for whoever it is that allowed this to fall through the cracks. You know, it seems like we've in the past years, you know, a couple of years, and I know uh, I, I was just talking to Mike Geary the other day, and I said, Mike, you know, you've probably done way over 100 shows. And he's like, yeah, I think I have, you know. <laughs> and, and I feel you've been doing this for over three years, I think. he's. I can't even imagine how many shows uh, you've done on here. And we've covered a great deal of active shootings, and, and it was very eerie to me. A couple of weeks ago, I was going down, I was heading to Key West, and I passed the Parkland School. Mm. And right away, I was like, that's the school where the officer didn't go in. And he, he, he got arrested, actually, but he beat it after trial. But I still, I just, I didn't like his response. And I'll play Monday morning quarterback. I usually never Monday morning quarterback another officer, but I didn't really like his response, to tell you the truth. But he went to trial on it and he beat it. He's a free man right now. The only thing he has to be tortured with the rest of his life is his own conscience. Could he, could he have intervened in a much more aggressive way and saved lots of people's lives? The same thing is true with Uvalde. How did those officers um, live with themselves, you know, based on their response? And, and I know a lot of them wanted to disregard the orders they were given by the chief on the scene. And you know something? I would have disobeyed those orders because in our patrol guide for the NYPD, it says you must obey lawful orders given to you by a superior. I would argue those were not lawful orders. When kids were screaming for help and being shot at, and this guy's telling you not to go in there, to me, that's not a lawful order. And I'm not trying to be a, a tough guy. I'm not trying to be a Clint Eastwood. Uh, but I would have went in, and I think Phil, you would have went, and I think Mike, you would have went. And that's in our DNA on the NYPD. You, you know, Billy, in that case that you're just talking about, uh, the officers that eventually did go in and take the shooter out uh, did, uh, you know, disobey in order not to go in. They said, "The heck with." I think they were Customs and Border Patrol SWAT team, and they decided to go in. So, uh, in those type of situations, you know, you have people calling for help. Uh, there was c contact with 9/11 in that case, and you know, we talked about uh, Parkland when that happened. Uh, those were two unfortunate incidences where, uh, you know, we're trained as uh, police officers that are emergency responders uh, based on all of the recent active shooter situations over the last 20 years or so to go in and try and get to the threat and neutralize the threat. You have to go towards it. It's a, uh, you know, it's a very scary thing, obviously uh, when someone has a high powered rifle and they're firing off rounds, but that's what you signed up for. And that's what you're expected to do. And I don't know if I'd be able to live with myself knowing that these young kids uh, are being slaughtered. And I was just, uh, you know, pacing around outside of a, of a school. So, but uh, I guess that's a story for another day. You know, Phil, when the great, one of the greatest pictures taken from nine 11, and you couldn't get one unless you were a chief or over. And it, it, it had this big poster of NYPD officers running into the world trade center. And it, the caption said, when others ran away from danger, we ran toward the danger. And it yeah. said, we are the NYPD. And I was like, wow. That says it all, you know, and just in that, I 
felt that picture was just amazing. And as I said, every chief that was on the job has a copy of it. I tried to get one. I was unsuccessful, but it, it was really touching. And, you know, just to add a, a footnote to that, one time I was, and I don't like frequently tell war stories, but I was working in anti-crime and I witnessed a knife point robbery of a guy that yoked this woman down, took a $5,000 fur coat. And I ran out of the car and the police don't move. And the guy tossed the knife and the fur coat and started running. And I chased him and my partner chased him with the car. Anyway, we apprehended him after my um, partner took him down with the car and a tactical takedown with a vehicle, which was beautiful. He was a 11 year street crime veteran. He took him down with the car. Guy went <laughs> down with the car. I give up. I give up. And I asked the perp, I said, because we were in plain clothes, I said, how did you know that we were the police? And he says, most people run away from robberies. He goes, you ran toward it. <laughs> I was like, that's the, one of the greatest compliments I ever got. And I got it from a bad guy. You know, That's an ironic statement, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it, was, it made so much sense. But that's how he knew we were the police. He goes, no one runs toward a robbery unless you're the popo, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, getting back to this, I'm sure that's early in the year. You know, it's it's February 13th right now. We're going to cover many more of these, unfortunately. And uh, unfortunately, active shooting incidents, they're here to stay unless there is a way to figure out how to stop them. And in the prevention side of it, we'd like to see more done on the prevention side. And, and a lot, of course, to some people that means, oh, just eliminate guns. You know, people in Europe will say that. We don't understand the U.S., you know, right to keep and bear arms. You know, well, that's why you're Europe, you know, and we're the United States. Uh, it's in our constitution. But a lot of Europeans and other countries can't understand uh, the right to keep and bear arms. It's a very American thing. But at the same time, there is a downside to that, Mike. Yeah, Billy, the, our, our freedoms are our greatest strength, but also they're risky. Having liberty means that the government is taking risks with the population to, uh, to see oversee. And remember, these are natural rights, the right to, you know, uh, uh, your free expressions, the right to worship, the right to pursue happiness, and the right to be free from government interference. And part of that is the ability to defend yourself. And that is baked into our DNA from wherever you are, from San Francisco down to Miami, from Bangor, Maine, down to LA. That's just it. Um, and um, that is a risk. And that, you know, calls for a social compact between people and the government and uh, to allow for um, re uh, people to have a firearm who need it for, for their purposes and to protect themselves and also for the government to say, okay, you know, we'll, we will understand that and we'll respect that. However, there are times like, uh, form, uh, convicted felons, you know, people like that who've had some issues with the law that they can maybe, maybe not have a firearm. And in this case, there was no reason for this person to have a firearm. They were arrested already for having an illegal firearm. They did 12 days in jail. Uh, at that point, would 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 there be any follow up to see if that person actually had a firearm inside their home? You know, contact people, do a follow up investigation. And unfortunately, there wasn't any. And so, you know, uh, the 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 good people who, you know, as Phil said, use it for sport or for hunting, for self defense, who would never ever ever imagine hurting anyone. Um, they're the ones who unfortunately end up getting hurt by uh, all, all the laws that are designed to stop perpetrators, but perpetrators don't respect the law. And so the only people who respect the law are the law-abiding citizens, and they're the ones that don't have the ability uh, to protect themselves, sadly. And uh, you're left then uh, uh, as a target, as a moving target for any person who is so armed and so inclined you know, to cause mayhem. But uh, it's a very it's it's a it's a social compact and it's part of the American psyche. I, I thought you were going to use that uh, you were going to use that cliche. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> a legal term, right? Yeah. I thought you were going to pull that out of your back no, pocket, no, but no, no, no. just as consciousness of guilt, you pull out <laughs> when you need that one. No, I, I wouldn't surreptitiously you gonna... try. Oh, you know, Mike, I I really agree with that. And one of the things, without getting getting political, well, one of the things that may seem political is that 
the way this church defended itself. And the way it defended itself was having armed off-duty officers, which has been recommended by the, uh, the National Association of the Chiefs of Police, have re recommended that to schools, to houses of worship, to any places where, where people gather. They recommended having armed off-duty either retired or active police officers as security guards. And in this incident, it worked beautifully. I mean, it, could it have gone any better? Yes, the seven-year-old could have not have been shot. That's the only way it could have gone better. But eliminating the threat, they did that. They eliminated, the neutral. they used the term neutralized neutral. the threat. They did that immediately, and these officers, they deserve to be, uh, you know, to be revered. They de deserve to be, uh, you know, honored. They did a, a fantastic job, and you know, there, there's having armed officers in a a church or in a, in a house of worship, or and and or schools, is probably really sound policy for the the prevention of an active shooter incident. You know, Billy, uh, there's something about this that's really, uh, it's like a, a sticking in my craw. Uh, the fact that she was able to get that gun. You know, recently, uh, I only uh, qualified once a year for my HR 218 qualification in the last, I don't know, number of years. But recently, a friend of mine got his full carry permit, asked me to help him, to train him, to teach him how to fire uh, his firearm. And then I got back into shooting, and I've been doing it kind of regularly as a sport. I went to my cousin's farm recently and fired uh, my rifle and stuff. And uh, it's really uh, a very fulfilling thing. It, it's a, a great sport. Uh, and to think that there's mechanisms in place and however it didn't prevent her from getting the gun. That's why I talked about it earlier. I just want to see that, uh, you know, whatever mechanisms in place. I mean, you, you talked about how you can't buy uh, ammunition for your gun without going through a background check. And, you know, uh, Texas might have a little bit more lenient gun laws, but uh, I don't think they have a, 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 such a lenient policy that a person with mental illness, obviously for many years, uh, uh, you know, diagnosed with mental illness on medication and numerous arrests, one for even uh, carrying uh, an illegal firearm should be able to procure that rifle and, and also was carrying another rifle was carrying a twenty. I don't know if it was a rifle or a pistol, but it was, it was a 22. Yeah. He had 22. One. So, so with all of that said, this just bothers me because it's going to, you know, you're going to have the people that are going to look to attack, the, you know, the first amendment and, and, you know, I'm sorry, the second amendment and with all of these things uh, in place, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, I just hope that someone's, held accountable because you know, it's going to happen at some point, you know, they're going to, it's going to turn political and oh, you know, she got, was able to get her hands on a gun legally and all of that. But uh, in this case, it really shouldn't have happened. You know, uh, I just hope that uh, whoever it is that was responsible can, uh, can face some consequence. Absolutely. TD Lewis from the chat. We had an active shooter in all Angleton, Texas, which is approximately 45 minutes from Houston yesterday. When will it stop? You would think that active shooters would be nervous to do that in Texas, where it seems like every other person has. Uh, yeah, it's an open carry state, yeah, I believe. It's an open carry state, you're right. And uh, I would think that, you know, states like that, people would be more concerned with, uh, you know, that, you know, you see the old uh, situations where someone goes in, does a stick up, and they get shot by 40 people in the restaurant, all armed, you know? <laughs> It's it's like one of those things. But there's look, I'm not a huge gun buff. I think I, I'm a Second Amendment guy, but I'm I'm not a big buff where I, I you know I think everyone should be carrying. But I I think I believe in the right to keep and bear arms, which it says in our Constitution. And there are those that would like to take that right away from us. And and you see situations like this. This person should have never had a gun, should have never had it, but she did. She did. So thank God, you know, that there were legitimate people in that location that neutralized the threat. We'll use those antiseptic words, right, uh, to neutralize. And there were people that were able to do that and took this person out. Uh, you know, we're at almost an hour, guys. I think we did a pretty damn good job covering this. Uh, 
I think it was a great, uh, I, I want to thank all the people that came by today. I covered a little bit of this yesterday before. No shooter. We know a hell of a lot about active shooters and the way law enforcement responds and the way it should happen. And this was really like a textbook to have two off-duty officers working for this church. Uh, just great, uh, great work. Phil, your final thoughts. Final thoughts. Only thing that could have been better in this case is if that little boy wouldn't have been uh, hurt and that 57-year-old man would have been uh, uh, not hurt. But in this case, uh, we know what happened. Let's hope uh, that the mechanisms that are in place can be adhered to and this could be prevented in the future. Uh, any uh, location that has a large gathering of people, they need to have security protocols in place like we talked about on the show, whether it be armed police officers, uh, eliminating entrances in, in, in and out, uh, you know, obviously emergency exits if you need to get out quickly. Run, hide, fight, very, very important. If you could run away from an active shooter, run. If you can't run, try to hide. And if you can't hide, you must fight. Those are uh, very, very strong words, and I think that they make the most sense based on all the uh, uh, different investigations that took place post a lot of these shootings. Again, thoughts and prayers for that little young boy, Sam, that was injured in this case. Let's hope that he does make a full recovery. And uh, keep a good thought uh, for the family of, uh, even though this woman was an active shooter, she has a family, and I'm sure that uh, they are hurting uh, right now. So just a good thought for anybody that was uh, a victim of this senseless, senseless violence. Absolutely. Mike, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Uh, this, like the Robert Card incident in Maine a couple months ago, point up, uh, off, up the weaknesses of just passing laws to restrict, you know, uh, gun ownership when there's no follow-up, there's no enforcement, or it's, or it's very ineffective. And uh, unfortunately, all of these uh, sorts of things, people fall through the cracks. Um, we see this time and time and time again. So uh, when, when people hear about these red flag laws, just, you know, Read the law, see what it says, see what law enforcement uh, uh, enforcement mechanisms are in place. But just passing laws is not the the way to make people safer. You need a lot more than just passing a law by some politician, you know, to make to get some votes. Um, you need a lot more than that. You need some uh, actual effective mechanisms that would actually answer the particular problem that the law is supposed to uh, solve and nothing more than that. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for your thoughts and your wisdom. And folks in the chat, people that tuned in tonight, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode, just